Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to a Mouse Clubhouse conversation. Hi, this is Scott Wolf, and this conversation is with Ron Logan. Ron's first job with Disney began in 1958 when he played trumpet in the Christmas Parade at Disneyland. In 1978, he became the Walt Disney World Music Director. In 1980, he became the Director of Entertainment at Disneyland. In 1982, Ron was the Vice President of Entertainment for Walt Disney World, and in 1987, he was the Vice President of Creative Show Development for all of Walt Disney Attractions. Finally, in 1991, Ron was named Executive Vice President, Executive Producer of Walt Disney Entertainment Worldwide, in which, as you'll soon hear, he was responsible for all the live entertainment in the entire company. Although he retired from Disney in 2001, he became a university professor and, as of 2016, was teaching Introduction to the Entertainment Industry and Entertainment Arts and Events. He also became the Entertainment Management Degree Advisory Board Chair at Rosen College. Ron played an integral part in shaping Disney Live Entertainment as we know it today, both in park and beyond. In fact, it was Ron who first came up with the idea of sending Disney shows to Broadway, and he was the first president of Walt Disney Theatrical Productions. In this conversation from 2007, you'll hear a couple beeps where I censored the name of a particular band member just to protect their identities, but that won't take away from these fascinating stories. Ron paints a beautiful picture of what it was like to be part of the renaissance of Walt Disney Live Entertainment. Here's Ron Logan. I actually started at Disney when I was in the 10th grade. I was at Glendale High School, and they did auditions for a program that was going to be a battle of symphony and jazz. Uh, and it was a, they put a, a band together fronted by Les Brown Jr., oh. who's now playing in Branson. I was picked to be in the band, and they, it was like Les Brown Jr. and his band against the Burbank Youth Symphony. And we went out to the studio, uh, rehearsed for five or six months, you know, a couple of times a month. And we were going to do this uh, TV show. And the TV show had Debbie Reynolds and Alvy Moore as host. We went up to the Starlight Theater in Burbank there and did a, a you know, pilot. And we were going to do it, but then... The union head at that time, who was Petrillo in New York, decided he wanted union scale for the whole orchestra. So Disney dropped it. But that uh, that was my first time at the studio. I met a lot of different people. Bob Bruner was the leader, was a was in that band as a piano player. He later went on to be a music conductor at Disney and all that. So it was my first involvement there. That my real involvement uh, from there in 1958. I was in the first Toy Soldier band at Disneyland at Christmas as part of UCLA. So I did that in 58. And in 1960, I was in the Squaw Valley Olympics as a trumpet player. Disney was asked to do the pageantry entertainment for the Olympics. In the Olympic Village, uh, opening, closing ceremonies. In addition to that, entertainment for the athletes. They had David Rose up there, famous conductor who did Lassie and all that. He did stuff. Uh, he had Wally up there doing performances, various other people that they brought in to do shows. For the uh, for the athletes? For the athletes. Oh. And for supporters. You know, it was different shows that would happen through the opening uh, time period of the Olympics. My primary role was to be in the fanfare group that would play every day for the winners, 
a guy named Johnny Dykeman was the head of it. Uh, he was going to do it, but he stepped off the bus up there, broke his ankle. Oh, gee. So he called my band director at UCLA. I was a student at UCLA and uh, asked if we had a trumpet player. And, and my band director, a guy named Clarence Sawhill, said, hey, how'd you like to go to Squaw Valley for, I think it was like two weeks, something like that. Yeah. And I remember that <clears throat> it was the... Uh, it was a unique time for me because I think it was my senior year, as I remember it. It was, as a matter of fact. So I had 22 units. So I was not at school for the first two weeks of my senior <laughs> last semester, which is really a challenge. On the other hand, though, I learned a lot about the entertainment business. Yeah. The unique thing, I, I got to meet Walt then and people like Art Linkletter oh. uh, because there was an entertainment trailer, and we kind of had the run of the place. I mean... We had a, a ski outfit that looked like the Finnish ski team. So a bunch of us would sneak into the village <laughs> as we look, and, we, and we'd say, "Don't, don't say anything." <laughs> so we'd go by the guards, and we didn't. We'd have our regular pass, kind of flash it, and we'd walk in. It's like we knew the place, and we used to go in there and have ice cream in the village. <laughs> really? On our breaks and stuff. But wow. we got into every. You know, hockey game and everything. It was really, it was really a cool thing. Yeah, that's and I got. We got to go to Walt Chalet party and all that. But let's remember when Ark Linkletter used to come in. He'd come in and spend the whole day on the stock market. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. He was up there to be the MC for, and I think he was one of the producers. As a matter of fact, for some of the events, he would bring in Hollywood stars and stuff for wow. for the for the for the parties and stuff. I know that there were things literally every night that they produced. Were you employed by Disney? Yeah, well, I was employed by Disney at that time to do the fanfare stuff. Okay, okay. And I became the leader of the fanfare group then. Oh, did you? That's really when I started. From then on, I, I stayed on a, I, I stayed on as a consultant with Disney for like 18 years. Wow. Yeah. Now, when, you know, I went back to school, got my degree, started teaching high school. but And in college and through all those years... I worked as a consultant doing scripts and halftime shows and putting bands together for parades and New Year's Eve and worked as a stage manager, tech guy. I mean, I did everything. In those days, you really cuffed everything, you know? Yeah. What was the entertainment department like then? Tommy Walker was a son of V.C. who was a leader of the first Disneyland band. And V.C. Walker, he, had the, he ran the Elks band in Los Angeles. And Walt knew he wanted a band to open the park, so they found the Elks Band, and so they bought the band in, and they ended up staying. And it's ironic, because V.C. hated kids. Oh, really? That is, the, that is ironic. I mean, he would say, get those damn kids out of here, you know? Yeah. And he'd smoke big old stogies and stuff. Well, his son, Tommy, mm -hmm. became pretty famous. He was at USC. He used to kick extra points for the football team. Right. But he was the drum major of the USC band. Right. So he would do drum major at halftime and then kick extra points during the games. He went on to do some movies and stuff. But he was the first entertainment director for Disneyland. But Tommy was a great guy, too. They were totally different people, but Tommy was just great. I, I did a lot of stuff with him, with my band, Columbia City College, like Pro Bowl games and things like He was a terrific guy to work for. Well, what was it like with other people? I mean, was it a tough atmosphere? It was tough, but it was fun at the same time. It was. Because there were no rules. Yeah. You know, I remember as a, I worked part-time, and fun things. Like, I remember 
finding out when, when Ike and security at Disneyland did his rounds, and I'd have to make a call to Sonny's office to have them bring in a truck of booze for the <laughs> really in the back of the park, you know. Uh, the interesting thing about it, it was really the entertainment industry, which was, was a pretty body body type of thing really? that was brought into the Disney culture. Games would play a thousand leagues stage and you go in the back area and you'd have to knock on the door. You walk in and everybody's smoking pot with games. Oh, gosh. It was absolutely the adult industry, but within Disneyland. Yeah. But the quality of the product was absolutely phenomenal. Right. He did in those days. You know, Sonny had a, had a show he did every weekend where he'd do a top 40 brand new show every week based upon what was whatever hit the charts. Hmm. You know, it was just, That's I learned amazing. so much by doing it. You know, you, you would do you would do shows where, where guys would light it. Uh, Gary, a guy named Gary Zolan, who became a pretty famous guy later, who ran Magic Mountain Entertainment and all that. Gary used to do lighting for acts like the Carpenters and stuff with no rehearsal. No kidding. And you would run sound for them with those groups like that with no rehearsal. Huh. You just had pros that would go out there in real time and make stuff happen. And you troubleshot every single... There's a guy named Carl Berg who was involved in the early days in the operations. Great, great guy. Carl and I Berg. worked with him, and we would just... We would go, you know, say, hey, we have to have a speaker at that stage in 20 minutes, and we'd go get a speaker. I mean, it was so loose. Because they had no time to plan. Yeah. And just use this professional's took care of it, and if you worked alongside the professionals, that's how you learned the business. This was really the best, wasn't it, as far as entertainment goes? You know, because the acts wouldn't come if it wasn't. Right. And in those days, you really had the big names, uh, all the big bands, the big names, singers, everything. What was it like when you started uh, initially, and you were just in the parade even, what were the shows and parades like then? Very professional. I remember, for example, before a parade, and and. I, I'll never forget this. Johnny Dykeman, who was my mentor, you know, I, I ended up teaching at his high school, and such, and we were friends forever. He used to go down the parade route and had a little basket. He would collect glasses, rings, and watches in any jewelry anybody had from a gal, because and you did not march that parade and not be authentic. You know, and the glasses is a tough issue. You know, I might pet peeve when I was the leader of the band's the daytime, guys wearing sunglasses. And if you, when I was the leader of the band, you didn't wear sunglasses. Yeah. Because you take away, that sunglass puts something between you and the audience, you know. And finally, when the union down here creamed me for it, we, we passed it. But I mean, we had those kinds of rules. And that's what you do in the professional world. You didn't, you know, you didn't do anything that was not professional. And, and it's interesting, the union did not like that you said they can't wear sunglasses. And, and I'm yeah. kind of surprised at that because, for example, a character in the parade, I mean, you, like nowadays, let's just say whatever, Ariel or some, you know, live character. I mean, you, you can't put sunglasses on them, so I'm kind of surprised that the band wouldn't be considered like a a, a cast member of a parade. Well, because but, but, but the band didn't like it either, see, that was the problem. Oh, and oh. The problem I had was when I became band leader, I inherited all these old guys when I came to Florida where I became, you know, full-time band leader. Mm-hmm. I had all guys who came out of the Army and the Navy and all that. They were retired. They didn't want to work. Yeah. You know, they just wanted their pension. Huh. And I made them work, man. I mean, I I really made them work hard. Yeah. And part of it was their, their image. 
and they didn't like it at all, you know, and I just said, well, we're going to do it, and I, at times you get extremely physical with it. I mean, it, you'd never be able to do it today. you get sued for a second, but there were times, man, I would walk up to a guy and take his glasses and just crunch him and throw him on the ground. Oh, really? Because you needed the best in entertainment. I needed the best, and I knew what the best was, and I yeah. knew what, because I'd been trained to do it. Right. I'd grown up with it. Yeah. You don't go out with a dirty uniform. You don't go out with, we used to wear white bucks all the time, and you better have your shoes cleaned up, you know, for me. I still think that that's the reason the quality was built. Yeah. Because of the professional attitude everybody had. Right. And we had leaders like Tommy Walker and Bob Yanni and Sonny, and, you know, they had a lot of fun with what they did, but, man, they knew how to do it. Yeah. What about Walt? You just learned from it. And Walt was still around when you started, so what was that? I met Walt three times. I met him uh, when I did that thing I talked to you about, the young, you know, as a young player. Mm-hmm. And then I met him. I used to be in a National Guard band in Van Nuys. Well, during Vietnam, that's what I did. I got into that band. And we used to go play at the studio for lunches in the Fantasia Theater. Oh. And one day I was walking in the back area, and Walt would come up. But he was extremely friendly to people. I mean, really? absolutely. He would, if you walked up, you know, he'd come up and ask you, who, you know, who are you? What are you doing here? What are you doing? And all, I mean, just very interested in, in people, a real people person. Hmm. Do you think as far as the entertainment goes, did he just let the entertainment people do their thing, Tommy yeah. and everybody? Yeah. He, he really kind of stayed out of it then as far as yeah, that He goes. really stayed out of it. And the really tough cookie was Roy. Oh, really? His brother. There used to be a code R on the radio. Really? Terry Roto was a supervisor. That meant Roy was in the park. And that, you really paid attention. No kidding. Well, now, I, I knew he was a finan- financial person, but what was his involvement then? Yeah, he was wow. the guy responsible for all the profit and stuff, so it all had to do with the operation. I remember I was in charge of the bands in the, one of the Christmas parades, mm-hmm. and I got tough on the bands because there's a tradition in the entertainment business the last time you do a show, you kind of screw it up. Oh, really? And when I used to play in, in like in Vegas and Tahoe and places like that, you had acts. The acts knew that you were going to kind of mess them up in the last show. It was oh, really? a, a traditional thing, you know. Huh. You just, you'd come in at the wrong time and all that kind of stuff. As a, as a tribute to the act, you know. Uh, yeah. And I remember in, in this parade, there was a group, the pirate band, I think it was, supposed to be playing yo ho 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 and they went they went by uh the crystal palace playing the usc fight song oh really and roy just killed me on that and those kids never were never to work in the park ever again you were ultimately responsible for what they did yeah well in those days i worked for sunny putting all the bands together for the parade oh wow new year's eve shows and stuff like that And, and i was working at that time from uh, let's see, what date? Um, 1960, at Long Beach City College. I had so I taught full time, and then I worked part time wow. as a consultant, like for 18 years, doing that kind of stuff. Fanfare, trumpets, anything that had to do with college age talent, I put together, and I did shows and did the libraries and conducted bands and no kidding. all kinds of different stuff. So after the consultant, when did you finally join on? Was that when you when uh, became a music director? Music director in 1978. And that was your first 
real full-time full-time yeah well I had actually gone out there for for about three months as the associate director with Jim Christensen of the Disneyland band because I really liked it a lot and they wanted me out there Bob Yanni offered me that job but I got out there and I didn't like it because Jim Christensen he's my one of my best friends but he wasn't about to let me do what I wanted to do it was his program so I went back to the college Oh. And so I stayed at the college until 78. And in 78, I was ready to leave the college to go somewhere else. And I was offered a job in Florida, which I, my wife would say, well, let's go do it for two years. And so we did it. And then I was promoted to director of entertainment out of that. And then back to Florida as vice president after that. And then up the ladder from there. So when you were in the director of entertainment, that was back out here, right, in California? Yes. And then you I went music director here. Then I was, when Yanni left to go to Radio City, I was one of the people that he picked to become a, a director. Hmm. And then I went to Disneyland as director of entertainment. Then I came back as vice president of entertainment at Disney right. World. That evolved into uh, senior vice president of creative and then executive vice president worldwide my last 10 years. So what did you do as a music director? I mean, obviously, you were responsible for the live music. But what, what kinds of things, what was your job as a I music I conducted director? a band every day. Oh, really? Concerts. Then I worked with, I had a guy named Steve Scaria who came in. I remember I hired him out of the Catskills. He was an assistant, a guy named Ted Rickards. He'd worked with me at Long Beach City College, came in. They ran the Magic Music Days program which is okay. the guest bands and all that stuff. And then they kind of took over at my direction of putting the bands together for the parades. But I was my job was anything that had to do with live music in the park, I was responsible for. Not the, not the, the pro acts. That was Sonny, okay. later Ron Rodriguez. But, they, but I was responsible for all the other musicians and the quality of the product and rehearsing. And, and what, kinds of, uh, what kinds of acts other than like the band? I mean, what did you have in those days? Oh, I did atmosphere stuff. I did every kind of thing you think of. Oh, so even uh, like sax, quintets, or whatever that you'd see yeah. on Main Street or I remember any of the lands. Working on the uh, Diamond Horseshoe down here. Oh, really? As I walked in, and uh, they'd hired some good old boys that couldn't read music. And the guy named Marita Orr, or Marita Valentine is her name now, I think. That was her original name. She is, could I come and help? Because the drummer wasn't crashing the cymbal, you know, hitting the cymbal on the right place. So I used, I actually had to go tr teach him how to cross stick to hit his cymbal on the right beat. Oh. I taught him by road because he couldn't read music. So one of these old guys, great Dixieland player, couldn't read music. But yeah. Funny used to have a habit of giving people jobs beyond their time. Oh, you know, really? Yeah. He was really? extremely loyal. And I used to fight him on it. But, but I understand why he did it. And I learned a lot from that. Hmm. of saying, you know what, it, it, the the citizenship of the person is really important. And when you think about who we had at Disney World, from Don Lamont to all the people who had done the, the Gleason show to, oh my God, I mean, it was a who's who of people yeah. who came here because of Sonny. And a guy named Bob Cross who worked with Sonny. And you talk about an education. At that time, I didn't even know who some of these people were, but Boy, and I look back at it, God, man, that, it was one of the most famous guys in the world, you know? Hmm. That's something. Now, during your consulting days, before you were even the music director, you said that um, 
America on Parade and Electrical Parade were really two of Disney's most significant parades. Were you involved in those parades at all? Only to help it. Uh, Bobiani came up with the idea of the Electrical Parade. And I was just around at that time to help with it because I worked as a supervisor part-time. On, on Disney on Parade, it was a little more involved in it because we had more live stuff in it than Electrical Parade had. Yeah. Um, but he was really the mentor of that. And, and another just fantastic person that died too early. Yeah, yeah. And, I you know, Bobbiani was such a great guy. He, was he? I told my classes, I worked for him side by side. I saw him take crap from people. I never, ever, ever heard him say a negative thing about another human being in my entire, you know, career with him. Yeah. I was one of the most nice, brilliant guys I ever met in my life. He did it quietly, his own way. You talk about a mentor. I mean, man, it was just, he was just so much fun to be around. And he took care of you, you know. A brilliant a lot that. from that, from a standpoint of leadership. Really? You take care of your people. Well, and Bob would always let you in. You always felt like you were part of the family, you know, with him. Yeah. But being part of the family, you had a responsibility, too. I mean, you had to, you never let Bob down. Really? I tell you, when I tell you when I got the offer, I know when I got the offer to go to Disney World and be the band leader of the Disney World Band. Yeah. Was when it was the last Christmas parade of this one year. And I was, I had a fanfare group. It was the last parade of the whole season. I was still rehearsing my group before we went out. I remember Bob coming up to me because everybody else was in there laying down on the job. But I, I was just so adamant that this group is going to be great. Hmm. I know he says, come and talk to me. I want to talk to you. And, and, and I went in the next week, and that's when he offered me the Florida job. He just, cause oh. he just saw that I knew, I knew about value. Yeah. And took care of business, even though I didn't have to. Right, know? right. With Bob, he was just, anytime, anytime you were involved with Bob, he'd be in that foxhole with you. He never felt like you're the Lone Ranger, ever. It, I, the leadership, is uh, it's just phenomenal, that leadership. Did you replace Bob Yanni? Dennis Despy was in the hopper there for, for a few years. At the time I became director, Yanni, uh, Yanni made Dennis a vice president. Oh. So Dennis took over for Yanni. Okay. And he was in charge until he left, and then I took over for Dennis. In the last 10 years, weren't you responsible for really all live entertainment in the country? All live entertainment, right. What did that involve besides the parks? Beauty and the Beast. I was first president of theatrical. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that. I had to put all that together. Yeah. It was the quality of the entertainment everywhere. It was all the shows for merchandise. It was uh, the people that... We did the movie premieres. They reported to me. Uh, Super Bowls, five Super Bowls. Anything that had to do with entertainment, I was responsible for. And, I, and there I have stories I can tell you, like the day I, and I uh, inherited the Mighty Ducks. Oh, yeah. I was in Berlin. And Eisner calls me and says, well, you really screwed up now. I said, what are you talking about, Michael? He says, well, I don't know if you know or not, but the Mighty Duck was in the press because... The duck, they did a thing at the hockey thing where the duck was supposed to jump on a trampoline through a wall of fire. He caught his skate on the trampoline and he fell under the wall of fire and the press said burnt duck. Oh, gee. And I said, well, Michael, you're talking to the wrong person because I don't do the mighty ducks. 
Oh, you didn't? What are you talking about? You're responsible for live entertainment. I said, Tony Tavares does live. This is Mighty Ducks. Because he, he didn't want any part of entertainment. And that Ooh, was uh, Eisner did it? No, Tony Tavares. Oh, Tony did it. And, and, I, and I didn't need anything else to do. Mm-hmm. He says, oh, interesting. I'm going to get back to you. Half hour later, he says, okay, now you have the Mighty Ducks. Oh, wow. And I remember I had to call Tony Tavares. I said, send me all the stuff to Berlin because I have a meeting with Michael, you know, five days from now, and I could tell him what I'm going to do. And I don't know anything about what you're doing. Hmm. And he sent me this stuff reluctantly. And I, I inherited the angels the same way. So literally anything that was done, like there was a whole bunch of stuff done in Asia, South America, Europe, I knew nothing about. But all of a sudden, I was responsible for them and my team. But that's why so many people got promoted, because I just had to expand like a explosion through those years hmm. to control things. And I had to pick, I ended up getting the right to pick who the, who the director and vice presidents of entertainment were going to be in each place and all that. Right. Where in the beginning, I had no say over that. They would pick who they wanted, and I had to work with them. Yeah. And that was tough. Now, you were, going back to, you were the director of entertainment, so in 1980, and then you said you went back to Disney World mm-hmm. after that as a... The opening of Epcot. So you were you were responsible for entertainment when Epcot opened? Yeah. You had the entire world showcase and everything. I guess every country had their own entertainment. Yeah. Was it a... Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of that had been, plan had been worked on before I got there. Oh, Abiani had done a lot of planning because that's one of the things he did when he exited. But I had to go down and make sure it all happened, and then and then take the brunt of Nunes beating up on us every day. Yeah, you know, because he's worried about getting the park open. He didn't care much about what we we had to worry about as far as shows. Yeah. So I was I was the one that took direction from Yanni again in regard to what we had to do, and we had like twenty three openings in twenty eight days. Oh, what kinds remember, of openings? Openings, everything. We dedicated everything. Every pavilion, oh. every shop, every every single thing, thing at Epcot got dedicated. And we had similarities to it. We used the same fanfare. But but when I came to Florida as vice president and we moved into a new house mm-hmm. that we had bought, you know, that was being built, mm-hmm. I was not home for a month and a half. Oh. Literally. I had a cot I slept on at work. I mean, literally. I mean, it, hmm. my family were on their own. For a month and a half, and we got that property open. What kinds of challenges were there in opening that? Oh, God, every kind of challenge you can think of. Where are we going to find the talent? Uh, like when we did a dedication of Epcot. Uh, the day we did the show, there was a low ceiling. We had these Phantom Jets, right? Mm-hmm. And I wanted them to come in as close as they could. And we got this call that said they can't fly because the FAA says the ceiling's not correct, right? So I said, tell them to try to do the best they can. And one pilot took it upon himself to do it and broke through. So we had this great roar. We had the things that Yanni had done, you know, putting, gathering uh, water from all the rivers of the world came to Orlando. And they were to be put in the fountain at Epcot. The 300-piece marching band we put together. Yeah. Of course, when we, the night we opened up, cut it rained like heck. Oh. Well, just about every time I ever opened anything, it rained. Really? Because you always do something October 1st because of fiscal year. 
Oh. Uh, we Disney dealt with it, and the weather's always crappy anywhere October 1st. Uh, that's I remember right. I even argued with Yanni. I remember it rained so hard, and these were college kids from around the country, you know, and our partner from USC was directing it. And Yanni said, well, kids can't march because they're going to get colds, they're going to get pneumonia and all this kind of stuff because their uniforms are wet. And I said, they've oh, they got to march. And I remember you saying, they're not going to march. And I would follow Bob. He tried to get away from me. I would follow him in the back of restaurants. And every place he went, saying, Bob, they got to march. No, they're not marching. God, they got to march. And then the ops guy's looking at me, well, Ron, they marching or not? They said, they're marching. Bob said, no, they're not. Oh, gosh. And what solved the problem? There was a, there was a group from Ireland, a band on horseback, hmm. that went out in the rain and performed. And I said to Yanni, I'll be damned if I'm going to let the Irish show that they got balls and we don't. So the band is marching. And boy, I had a, Bob had a problem with me for a long time after that. No he finally came around, but, you know, that was my thing. I knew that those kids were going to march, and they had a friggin' ball. I didn't care if it was raining. And really? So, it, so there's a lot, uh, you know, all those kinds of experiences that make it, uh, you know, that you remember at the time they're hassles, but when you look back, it was what made it special. Yeah. We always exceeded expectations of yeah. everybody. Now, with Bob, uh, Bob was writing, was he, he was creating a lot of the entertainment? He would, he would produce it, he would talk it, and we'd do it. Right. He didn't it, put anything together. I mean, he put the concept together. Oh, I see. He put the World Symphony Orchestra together, you know, for the opening of uh, Magic Kingdom down here. So he did. He had a lot to do with helping us with things. He, he brought Skippy Lynn in, who was a gal that did a lot of the international stuff with Sonny. Hmm. Uh, so he was pulling the strings. I mean, he was the boss, and we had such great respect for him. But he was busy with busy with Radio City Music Hall, you know, which was his own thing. Right? Excuse me. Was that his own thing, or was that through Disney? No, his own thing. He had left. That was oh, okay. to go to work for Radio City Music Hall. Oh, okay. So the yeah. last years of his life, he flew. Every week to New York, and he lived in L.A. But we took direction from him, and I remember him coming down, and we were so good at operating by this time. Bob really got frustrated because he came down, didn't have much to do, and I, and I have I joke about it because Tony Peluso, who's around town here, and uh, he worked with Tony at first, Sonny, and he's been involved in a lot of different things. Tony Peluso was conducting a band up on top of the roof of uh, Communicore. Oh wow! And Bob comes up and he says, "Look at that, fix it." You know, and I look up, and I said, fix what? Because it was sounding great. Mm -hmm. Well, Tony Peluso's feet were apart. Oh. He was conducting. Really? And Bob wanted his feet together. Okay. <laughs> that's all I had. All, that's all Bob had to complain about, because he oh, didn't find any problems. <laughs> Bob wanted to come down and, well. and, and problem solve. There weren't any problems to solve, and it really frustrated him. Oh, really? With Barnett Ritchie working there. And, yeah. Uh, huh. I remember a thing with her. She wanted to have... We had the two bands divided up. There were 150 musicians on the top of Communicore, one, like, uh, 150 on either side. And she wanted to do the opening where the band would follow the leader and come up, come out on the rim of the, you know, which is extremely dangerous. She wanted the band to come in one at a time. And, and I argued with Barnett. I said, I don't want that. I want it to be like Custer's Last Stand. Hmm. Like, I want them all to... I want to hear the drums in the background. I am all get to that rim at the same time, like overwhelming. Man, look at all those Indians. 
And I really got it. I said, you're doing what I want to do. And I took a chance on it. But, man, it was one of the things I still remember was the right decision. Cause she admitted, man, that was spectacular. Because all of a sudden, I'm nothing. You hear these drums. All of a sudden, there's 300 people. And it just was like, oh. Because that was my thing, you know. That was my, I knew how to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. It, it was really the entertainment that, I mean, just the things that you've been talking about today, it's so different than really anything that's been done anywhere. And you didn't have anything, did you, where you would be inspired by some, it all had to come from just inside your heads because these things were just never done. That's right. We we were our own competition. Yeah. What we had done before. And that, that was kind of cool. We didn't have to go look out. I mean, we did. We'd go look and see what people were doing and, if I found out found somebody who's doing something great on the inside, I brought him in. Hmm. Come work for us. Was there anything where you ever thought this is just impossible? It's not going to work, and then you make it work. Uh, well, there are a few things I thought would work, like the Wild West show in Europe, and it turned out to be the only thing the French even liked. Really, totally successful. Still, you know, that show still goes two shows a night, seven days a week. Oh, it is. And it's an absolutely authentic show based upon Buffalo Bill, of his costumes, what he did, uh, you know, real Buffalo and all that. It's in my book, you know, as you read about the Buffalo right. with masks, we, we had to sell them to Canada and all that. Going back before that, when uh, did you replace Bob Yanni? Dennis Despy was in the hopper there for, for a few years. At the time I became director, Yanni, uh, Yanni made Dennis a vice president. Oh. So Dennis took over for Yanni. Okay. And he was in charge until he left, and then I took over for Dennis. So how did that differ from music director? Totally different. Oh, really? What first kinds of, of things all, did you do? Yeah. First of all, uh, I was totally surprised about it, because uh, we had moved to Florida in 78 with the idea we're going to stay here and see what happens. And I was going to go on to a four-year school because I'd had it with the junior college. I'd done as much, as much as I could. One reason I hadn't gone before is that where I was in Long Beach paid a lot of money, you know, and most four-year schools don't, you know. Yeah. But um, they, they pulled my name, Bob pulled my name, because I wasn't there, on a card in his pocket that I should be the person. And that way, Bob said it, that was it. And I remember thinking, man, I don't know if I can do this or not. I don't know how to do this. I knew nothing about corporate administration. And I had been involved with running things, but I didn't know anything. And I, like, I remember the first thing I had to do, and I remember that the, my, my family moves back to California. We had to live in a hotel because we had no house. Uh, and the first thing I did was get kidney stones. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I know and what those I, are I, like. I get a call and say, well, we need a structure chart. Well, what's a structure chart? A structure who chart. reports to who, you know? Oh. We need your budget done. Oh. Well, what kind of budget? <laughs> Send me examples. So I, I had to literally earn from scratch. So it's totally different. I mean, I, yeah. still, had, I still had people that, that I worked with that I knew from entertainment, which helped me along the way, right? Right. But at that time, when I came back to Disneyland, that's when some of them were quitting, uh, not because not because I came back, I don't think, but like Jim Christensen left then. He was the leader of the band. John Arnello left then, who was involved with, you know, he was a top uh, producer in educational programs. So I had to start with new people. 
and I had to literally start from scratch of how to organize. Now, I knew how to lead, but I didn't know how to organize, you know, because Bob had set up a, it basically an operational technical area and then versus a creative area. And they always battle back and forth. You know, I never really believed in that, that you know, uh, management by friction, but I know Eisner felt the same way, and, and Walt did too. I just didn't believe it, but so I had to learn that. And I remember, and, t- and Sonny would, if I remind him, he'd tell you, there was one time where talent booking the creative side had a problem and vice versa with the operational side. And I sent him in my office and I said, we are not leaving this room until we figure out how to work. We literally stayed in there six hours. I would not let him out the door. And it broke, it broke the cycle, made everybody start working with each other. Yeah. Because in the early days, a guy named Bob, uh, uh, Ron Mitziker, and a guy named Schwartz, Ron Schwartz, hated each other, but, but they worked under Yanni. Oh, wow. And Yanni was their boss, and he'd tell them what to do. You know, he believed in that kind of friction thing, too, which I didn't. Hmm. But they hated each other. And I always ended up working on the creatives hmm. side. Or I, I take that back. Sometimes it is, sometimes it didn't, now that I think of it. Uh, and I used to see that battles. But So I knew a little about that, but, but I had to organize it myself. So I learned a lot from that. You know, yeah. the, 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 way, the reason we were allowed to learn is things didn't happen fast. You know, and the park was closed two days a week in the oh. in the non-peak season. It wasn't like the, these corporate days. You know, when my last ten years of my career, I was only home a week a month for ten years. You worked twenty-four hours a day around the clock and all that stuff. Yeah. So you had you had a chance to learn the job, right? And people willing to help you. And I was a pretty good learner because you know I I knew a lot about the industry because I I'd grown up in it. You know, I was in lounge acts and played in bands, road bands, and did recording and uh, sidelining in movies and all that stuff. So I knew a lot about the industry. So 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 nobody could hoodwink me. Right. But I had to learn a lot about administrative stuff. And it, but I found out that I was good at it. How much of your job was administrative? Was it about half your job as administrative, or was well, it even more? Three fourths of it. Really. We didn't do a lot of new stuff a lot of time. I mean, we did we changed things very slowly. You know, until we evolved, and then, and then all of a sudden the company caught on fire when we had the Japan part. I remember training for a year. We trained the Japanese, and most of them were older people. They ended up getting fired once it started because they didn't know what they're doing. Most of them had come from film companies. Oh, wow. uh, Toho, you know, they'd book things and produce big shows. They didn't know anything about theme parks. Right. And the younger people would come in because you didn't literally teach classes, you know, on entertainment. Younger people would come in. They'd get it, but they'd say, well... When this class starts, I can't talk because my, you know, my adult uh, mentor talks for me because it was part of that culture. Interesting. It's a whole different experience. <laughs> yeah. Now, what was your involvement with that? I was responsible for the training of the Japanese for entertainment for Japan. No kidding. I had Larry Bowman with me then. Oh, responsible I for that too. Just interviewed Larry. The other just went to his house the other day. About a week ago, well, that, now, I guess. That's, uh, you know, we were all involved in that. Everybody was there. Tony was, Tony Peluso was, a lot of different people were. So were there any other cultural challenges for you? Japan was not, it. Japan, the only thing was, are they going to do what we, what we asked them to do? And I learned that, that once you got over the hump, they respected you. I had the most fun of probably any job I ever had. Really? Every time I went to Japan, 
anything I wanted, I had, man. I mean, my wife liked going there because they treated her like a saint, you know. Yeah. My toughest thing was France with the French. Really? That was hard? Such a pain in the ass. No kidding. Because they didn't want any part of us. And you were doing the same thing, the the entertainment? Yep. And you got to remember, Dick Nunes refused to go to France. Oh, I didn't know that. What's that story? Well, he was responsible for everything, and he wanted to go to Spain. Oh. And the other contingent wanted to go to France, and the company picked France for obvious reasons because of the number of people. You know, the the French gave a 7% loan forever. Hmm. Uh, Dutch the position to Paris and all that, and the site in Spain was on the coast about an hour from Barcelona, which was a gorgeous spot, but there was nobody there. Right. Well, Dick put his reputation on the line, it was going to be Spain, and when it wasn't, he just refused to do it. Actually, I was brought into it in a unique fashion because there was a whole separate group of people, Jim Cora was in charge of it, and other people, hmm. to do it, and they didn't want any part of attractions. They were going to do their own thing, thank you. And that's when Eisner came to me and said, we need to have you in France to make sure what, because he was seeing his own problems with what was happening there as far as, you know, brand and all that. I had had been involved with the original concept for France with WDI. Oh, you were? And he was seeing the problem, so he said, you got to go over there and take care of that. And Jim Cora refused to pay for it. And he and I had, you know, we were we didn't, we didn't talk for years, Jim and I. And and Nunes would say, go do it. And Nunes would make it work because Eisner would say to Nunes, make sure he goes over there. So that's why I didn't like it because I went over there. I had no staff. Yeah. It's like the friggin' Long Ranger. You know, I'd go in there and had to bluff my way through things. And I, I got stories I could tell you that just I still cringe when I think about it. That I wanted to knock, actually knock people in the nose, you know. And it wasn't always the French. It was the American people that just didn't want any part of what we did because in those days, entertainment was considered an accessory. Really? Not a strategic asset. Until I became in charge of entertainment worldwide, mm-hmm. centralized, which Judson Green really made happen. Because Dick, Dick had considered it an accessory too, Dick Nunes did. Oh. Until I got that promotion, my job was hell. Because I had to go do stuff, and I had no power to do anything. I couldn't fire anybody. I couldn't. I had to try to sell them on the idea. Huh. And the French were just tough. And the reason they were tough is that Jim Cora and the, and the team, who's one of my best friends now, would undermine me every time I went there. I, I just was terrible, terrible, terrible experience. But yet we made it work. We made it happen. And there's some things in France I'm quite proud of, like the Wildway Show and the parades we did in the beginning. And uh, but you talk about hurdles, man. No kidding. Tough, tough, tough. How long were you in France at a time? Sometimes one or two weeks. My toward the later part of my career, I was never anywhere in the world for maybe more than three days. Oh, really? Japan, France, or whatever, for three days and come back? I would go. No, I'd go on a trip. Because, again, I tell you, I was gone three weeks of every month for ten years. I had five million miles on Delta alone. Five million miles? I was in the top point zero zero three percent of the travelers in the, the U.S. And I flew every other kind of airline there was. Now, this is when you were responsible for all the parks, right? Right. My last ten years. Actually, I, it's not even fair to say parks. Out of everything that you've worked on, is there any one project that really stands out as a favorite of yours? Uh, or did we already? Well, Beating the Beast, Buffalo Bill Wild West show, 
Pan American Games okay. in Indianapolis. I mean, I, probably the, pr- the most recent proud thing, and a lot of people take credit for it, is the Lagoon Show at Epcot, Illuminations okay. 2000. I mean, when I die, I want that music played at my funeral. I mean, it's it, great. I just, it still inspires me every day in that show. And my class, you know, it never gets old. We hope you've enjoyed this Mouse Clubhouse conversation. Thank you for joining us.